Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Jason Crawford, who is the founder of The Roots of Progress, a blog turned nonprofit that is dedicated to establishing a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century and helps foster the emerging progress studies movement. Amongst other things, we discuss progress as a concept and what it tangibly means to boost sustainable growth, the relationship between progress studies and effective altruism, especially how to balance inventing new technologies and minimizing existential risk, and the role of altruism as a motivation for progress and choosing a career. Finn and I got to speak to Jason whilst attending the Moral Foundations of Progress Studies workshop in Austin, Texas. So this is incidentally also the first time that Hear This Idea got to hit the road. I think there is just an incredible amount to learn from reaching out to other movements and think through these really big questions together. So I should also plug that Jason has launched a progress forum uh, similar to the EA forum. Uh, so that means that there's ample space to continue having these discussions online too. But for now, without further ado, here's the episode. Thanks for having me on here. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. My name is Jason Crawford. I write uh, a blog called The Roots of Progress, which is now also a nonprofit. So I'm the founder of The Roots of Progress, and I write about the history and philosophy of of progress, beginning with uh, the history of technology, and now I've kind of broadened to you know the the broadest topic of human progress. Awesome. Uh, and one question we like to like ask guests to begin with is, what is a problem you're currently stuck on? Well, uh, you know, one thing that I'm sure we will, uh, you know, definitely get into is uh, I've been thinking about and doing some research on uh, the topic of progress and safety. Like, what is the relationship between those two? And it's um, it's not a simple, straightforward, you know, linear relationship, right? It's subtle. I think it's subtle and nuanced. So, cool. So the way that I propose we maybe like structure uh, this conversation is one: I just want to get a like better understanding of what progress studies is, and especially the case for like sustainable growth, uh, just like being a really important and like underrated uh, like factor in the world. And then two, I want to like maybe talk a bit about like what interventions or like real world things could like boost this and could actually be like really effective in bringing this about. And then three, I want to touch on exactly what you just said there and think about how progress studies relates to like risk and safety and also just like the long-termism or like EA community as a whole. So yeah, if that sounds good, we can, we can start with that. Let's do it. Yeah, pretty natural question to start off with is, can you just try summarizing the thesis behind progress studies in your own words? Yeah, sure. Let me start with um, what got me into it, because I started um, reading and writing about this stuff in early 2017, just a couple of years before the progress, the current sort of progress studies community took off. Um, I was just uh, looking at history, and the last couple hundred years have been really amazing for human welfare um, in many different dimensions, right? And we, um, you know, we often think about uh, just the sort of really obvious one of like GDP per capita, right, increasing for pretty much the first time in human history, um, and, and increasing by more than an order of magnitude, way more, you know, in, in developed countries over the last couple hundred years. Um, but then if you also think almost everything we know in science has come in the last few hundred years, um, and really, uh, even though uh, uh, moral or social progress sometimes feels more elusive or fragile, there's actually been a lot of that in the last few hundred years too. If you just realize that, um, you know, in 1775, uh, pretty much the entire world was under monarchy and had been for thousands of years with like, with, for, for all of human history with very sort of rare and, and delimited exceptions. Uh, and so, and, and today, right, monarchy has mostly kind of gone by the wayside and has been replaced with democratic republics. And uh, that's just one example, right, of the, of the ways that, that things didn't change for thousands of years than have changed a lot. And I think, you know, in that case for the better on the last few hundred years. So uh, if, if you look at that, you just say, wow, something went really right 
it's actually, you know, in some way, the Industrial Revolution is the greatest thing ever to happen to, to humanity. Um, we should just take a look at that, right? Like <laughs> it, that, that, that deserves study. And so the way I called it out was, uh, I think if you if you care about human well being and then you you realize how how good this has been the last couple hundred years, you've just got to ask one how like how did it happen? Just kind of nuts and bolts, like a gears level understanding on the from the ground up. What what were we doing wrong a couple hundred years ago that was leading to such a terrible standard of living? Right, and what did we what did we figure out? What did we start doing right? Uh, second, why did it take so long? All right. Why did we have to go through thousands, tens of thousands of years of so much suffering and death among people before we kind of finally found these keys to growth? And then the obvious question three for the future, how do we keep it going? Right. How do we how do we continue this progress, maybe even accelerate it? How do we get more of of what we got? Is it fragile? Is it um, is it or is it in any way, you know, to, to what extent do we have agency over it? Right. Is this under our control? Is it something that we have to that, that moves forward inevitably or inevitably stops, or is there some way in which it's up to us uh, to keep it going? So those are the questions that animated me and began my study, and I think, um, the, the, I mean, the, the, all of those, I think, would resonate with the broader progress community. I remember Tim Urban posed this question, which is something like, would you rather be born into the you know, mid-18th century as a French monarch, or be born into a kind of median-income, middle-class family in um, a developed country? And... That's at best a toss-up for me, right? <laughs> Which really nicely illustrates that that progress. Um, also, to pick up on something you mentioned about how fragile is this enormous uptick, right? So one framing could be, um, you know, you said something like, what were we doing wrong for so long, right? What took us so long? Um, another framing is something like, what on earth went right? You know, poverty is the default state of yes. almost all of humanity for almost all of history. Yeah. Something very weird happens. Potentially, that's very fragile. If it is, that, that's worth caring about. Uh, so some people over the last decade or so have been very concerned about technological stagnation. Mm. Um, Peter Thiel is one who started sounding uh, this alarm. Uh, Tyler Cowen wrote a book called The Great Stagnation over a decade ago. Robert Gordon, uh, another economic historian, has, been, uh, ha has written a bunch about this. He has this book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth. Um, all three of those thinkers, by the way, I think have very different views of stagnation and certainly of the future, uh, but they all are co sort of calling attention to a, a relative slowdown in progress in the last 50 years. Um, now, uh, that was not my personal motivation. I actually was skeptical of the whole stagnation hypothesis at all in the beginning, and I eventually came around and, and now I think it's probably about right. Um, but, but for me, it was less, uh, my motivation was less saying, oh no, things are slowing down, how do we get back on track? And more just, well, things have been really good. Let's let's get underneath this, right? Let's and and I and I began with a with an idea that this is really going to inform or really ought to inform our worldview. Like what we care about in society, in political discussions, in the culture, um, even down to basic things like respect for reason and science. Like ultimately, um, the, the, the history of progress is a, is a big part of that and ought to really inform our worldview. Yeah. I think there's like something interesting in this as well that I guess like progress as a term kind of catches that it's not just about economic growth, it's about like social advancement and like uh, these other like factors as well. And I'm like curious if you can like maybe speak to that a bit more 
of there's like one version of this like in my head, which is just like economic growth is like the important thing, and the other things like happen downstream. There's like another narrative that these things are like more embedded or like maybe come down from like institutions and like culture, and that is like ultimately like the driving factor. Maybe it's just like a big like messy thing as a whole. Yeah, like how do you think about that? So there's at least three major types of progress that I think about. Um, the one that I've mostly been studying and writing about so far is progress in technology, uh, industry, and the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a very obviously progress in science and knowledge. And then uh, uh, somewhat less obviously, but again, I think very real, is progress in morality and society and government. And I think of those three strands as kind of being the, the big three themes of human progress. Uh, I think ultim- they are distinct but inseparable. Mm-hmm. They are ultimately all intertwined and they uh, they reinforce each other and make each other possible. And so I think if you really want to understand the, the story of human progress, you have to understand all of them together. Right. And I guess like on Finn's point before, you know, when he framed it as like, well, what the hell went right? If you look at like the literature of what caused the industrial revolution, you definitely see like all three things being suggested, right? Of like the scientific revolution being really important, just the institutions and markets were like really important and like economic growth or like just like access to, to resources or ideas of like steam engines and like engineering and stuff being really important too. But that it required like a whole bunch of things uh, kind of like coming together in order to like unlock this this big explosion. Yeah. And then like the flip side could be something like, why didn't China industrialize first? Mm. And then maybe the answer isn't so much, here's a specific factor, but more all these factors didn't come together at the right time in the way that maybe they did in Europe. And of course, I mean, economic historians have devoted entire careers to answering these questions. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll cover them now. (laughs) Cool. Um, I think one thing I want to touch on a little bit as well is uh, I was reading kind of like on the flight here, uh, like the Tyler Cowan book, the like stubborn attachments thing. And one thing that kind of like stood out from that a little bit as well is this question of when we're talking about like growth and progress, how much are we talking about like progress on the frontier? Uh, or how much are we talking about like other countries or like regions and stuff catching up to like what is at the frontier? Um, and yeah, I guess like there's an interesting question here as well of like when progress studies talks about like advancement, is it like centered around frontier? Is it centered around catch up? Is it about both? Um, yeah, I would like love to hear your, your views on that. Yeah. So in my opinion, both of those things represent progress and are a form of progress. Mm. Um, I would say in general, the progress studies community focuses more on the frontier growth. Um, the catch-up growth is interesting because like, it's something I've researched less, but my impression is that a lot of it just has to, like whether, whether that growth happens, where it happens, how fast it happens, has a lot to do with just sort of the, the quality of the institutions and especially the government. Um, and uh, it's about sort of getting some of the right foundation of rule of law, um, getting rid of corruption and, uh, and so forth. Um, uh, there aren't many people who actually talk a lot about that, um, even within the global development um, community, and I still don't fully understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, uh, I, I think the, the the problem of how to how to solve the catch up growth and you know why isn't um, you know Nicaragua as as uh, wealthy as Norway yet, right? Um, like I think I, I think that's an interesting and important problem. It's also pretty distinct from the problem at the frontier. Yeah. Um, but of course, if we only solve the catch up problem and we don't solve the frontier problem then uh, all that's going to happen is eventually everybody will catch up to the frontier and then there'll be nowhere left to go. So I think uh, that's part of why I'm just sort of more focused on uh, let's make sure that we continue to blaze that trail at the Mm -hmm. frontier, right? 
Yeah, I think there is like an interesting point in this though, kind of going back to what we said before about just like taking a step back to like reflect on how amazing like human advancement has. The thing that I'm kind of like thinking of are these like our world and data graphs that map out like poverty reductions or like access to health and stuff. And a lot of this stuff didn't happen when the industrial revolution happened, right? In the 1700s, it happened in the 20th century, right? Like in the 1900s with essentially big countries, China, uh, now like India and stuff, like catching up and like getting out of poverty. And a lot of that, necessitating, as you said, frontier growth, but the like channel that kind of like gets it to like trickle down being catch up growth or being um, countries getting to the frontier. Yeah. And I note, by the way, that um, particularly in health, right? So health outcomes, there's less disparity in health outcomes overall than there is in like GDP or overall wealth. And um, part of that is because of uh, international aid, you know, type programs. Part of it is just because, uh, you know, once you invent a vaccine, right, you can manufacture and distribute that vaccine all over the world, for instance. Or once once some researcher somewhere figures out the, um, uh, right, the, the right solution of, uh, you know, water, sugar, and salt that you need for uh, cholera, um, right? I forget the, the term for that solution, but you can you can drink to, to combat the dehydration, right? Some researcher somewhere figures that out, and then you can that knowledge can spread all over the world. Um, so that, that's another reason to sort of like care a lot about frontier growth because there are there do end up being these effects that yeah, yeah. F- affect the whole world. Maybe that's also true of something like you know institutional technologies, right? So maybe there are like managerial practices that get invented at the frontier and then um, that's like a positive externality. Maybe also in a broader sweep of human history, something like markets technology, um, you know, eventually have been imported to potentially um, good effect. Um, So I guess when we're talking about technologies, we're not just talking about silicon or gears, right? But also social technologies. Ultimately, yes. Super. Cool. Um, Well, let's maybe unpack this idea of like, frontier growth or scientific advancement or something like a little bit more. I think one of the things that like just really stands out is that seemingly small changes in the growth or in the progress rate or like whatever we want to like kind of like call it um, really just compounds a lot like over time and stuff. And this is just like a really, yeah, like underrated phenomenon. I, yeah, I'm just curious to maybe like hear a bit about that and see how it fits in with, with the idea of progress studies or the, it's kind of like theory of change. Yeah, sure. I mean, ultimately, that's just math. Um, you know, <laughs> the difference, but the difference between a two percent growth rate and a three percent growth rate, for instance, you know, compounded over a long period of time is just not intuitive to people, right? Compounding growth in general is sort of not intuitive. Um, but you know, you compound that over a couple of generations, and you've got you know like a three x difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's something that seems kind of trivial, right? And like. Oh, why do you care whether uh, the GDP growth rate is like three percent or two percent? Well, it it, it it makes a huge difference over the long term. One of the maths hacks that I remember being taught, like undergrad, is the like seventy over x rule. That if you want to like think about how long does it take for something to double, um, divide seventy by the growth rate. So seventy divided by two percent is thirty five years for it to double. Seventy divided by seven is ten years to double. And that is like one way to like maybe uh, get more, just like how incredibly like quickly these things can happen. I feel like quote unquote just maths is often highly underrated. <laughs> In general, uh, uh, progress uh, feeds on itself, right? Um, uh, it is it's self-reinforcing and self-building, and um, this is true of uh, again. So this is true of a number of different types of progress. So it's certainly true of economic and scientific progress, right? Um, in 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 many ways, you know, some of which are more obvious, some of which are less. Um, obviously, you know, technology uh, or sorry, obviously science uh, helps create advanced technology, um, but then of course technology helps drive science. Um, better technology gives us better measuring instruments, for instance. 
or the ability to send probes into space or uh, maybe one day build a radio telescope on the far side of the moon or, you know, who knows what, right? Um, and so uh, that then drives science forward. So there's a reinforcing loop there. Um, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of different reinforcing loops at many different levels, and that is why um, uh, progress has been so so throughout most of history. And then um, you know it, it compounds and builds on itself, and just the, the the pace just you know keeps increasing. I guess like one skepticism that um, I think you can like often come across when you're like thinking about these things is just like a skepticism more broadly of like how much room there is like just for growth in general, or how much of that can like really be sustainable. Um, you hear this like sometimes from like I mean possibly like most prominently from like the degrowth uh, movement, but also just like more general or like um, milder like worries of like environmentalism or just like resource constraints and stuff as well. Like the great thing about like compounding or like, as we said, like maths is that like things can like grow really, really quickly. But there is also this concern that like things grow really, really quickly and just like consume a lot. And like, do we not at some point like just hit barriers that like put a limit to this? Yeah. Uh, so uh, this has been a concern for a very long time, you know, um, even so long before uh, people were worried about peak oil in the 20th century, people were worried about peak coal in the 19th century. Mm. Um, there was this guy Jevons, William Stanley Jevons, who sort of warned about how England was running out of coal and was going to use up all of its coal and coal was the source of its might and that was going to be a big problem. Um, around the same time, uh, people were warning about the end of gold and silver and other precious metals which were going to run out really quickly. Um, of course, uh, of course, there was you know Malthus from this time who basically thought that um, agricultural productivity could never ever be uh, improved exponentially and therefore population would always outstrip it if we weren't very careful to, to basically do population control. Um, so it just depends It depends a bit on what level you look at these things. So sometimes when you look at it at, at, at one level, it's absolutely true that there are resource limits. Um, so one example that I wrote about, I wrote an article in the MIT Technology Review uh, where I used this as a case study in the late 1800s. Um, uh, William Crookes, uh, the physicist who invented the Crookes tube, uh, gave this lecture and he turned it into a book warning about how we were running out of fertilizer mm -hmm. and that we were going to, um, there was going to be no more fertilizer. We weren't going to be able to grow crops. We weren't going to be able to grow wheat and um, we'd be facing these food shortages and so forth. Now, on one level, that was absolutely true. Um, we were running out of the sources of fertilizer that we had at the time. Now, what Crooks correctly saw was that this didn't have to actually constrain um, progress. And what he called on was for the chemists of the world to solve this problem by coming up with some sort of synthetic fertilizer. Uh, and he even had an idea of how you could do it by um, fixing nitrogen in the atmosphere, which turned out to be correct. Um, he had an idea that you could do it with electricity, which turned out to be not the way um, that we do it. Uh, but uh, but he, he knew that like lightning, um, uh, so lightning actually will uh, uh, break nitrogen bonds and and will create uh, uh, NO nitrogen oxygen compounds in the atmosphere. And that's where actually some of the world's, um, you know, it's just in, in, out in nature, like that's where some of the fertilizer uh, fertility of the soil gets replenished from. So he had some idea you could do this, uh, you know, using like a, a big electric power plant and then, you know, use use electricity artificially to, to anyway. So that turns out to be not the way we do it. Um, uh, but we did find a different way to do it, which was the Haber-Bosch process. And so within a couple of decades of this, uh, of his initial warning, you know, we had this uh, way of creating um, synthetic fertilizer. Incidentally, there were also other things that happened that Crooks didn't foresee. Um, so, uh, so Crooks didn't think that we were going to be able to expand uh, land usage very much. But then what happened was something came totally out of left field, which was we got agricultural mechanization. So we got the tractor, uh, the gasoline engine, and then that created the farm tractor. And so this 
this helped uh, to further mechan- agriculture had already begun to mechanize at the time, but this began to further mechanize agriculture. Mm-hmm. And um, and you might wonder, well, okay, but how does just having the machines uh, solve the fertility problem? Well, it does in the following way: when you lower the labor cost of the land, you can open up new lands that were marginally productive, right? right. That were not profitable to farm under uh, if you had to use lots of labor, but then they become profitable to farm if you if you can mechanize the labor. So um, so very often these things just uh, come from unexpected sources. So anyway, coming back to the resource issue, right? So were we was there a resource crisis? On one level, yes, there was a resource crisis because we were running out of the known sources of fertilizer. Mm-hmm. But on another level, no, we were able to com- to continue exponential growth in agricultural productivity unimpeded because we put some of our best minds on the problem um, and we actually solved it by finding um, a new resource, right? Yeah. So the thing about resources is at the end of the day, there are no natural resources. The term is something of a misnomer, right? It, like on, on one level, like every resource is natural. There are no supernatural resources, right? <laughs> um, but on another level, all resources are artificial because all resources are the product of our knowledge and our understanding. Um, you know, even, uh, right, I mean, sand was uh, was not the, you know, th- consider sand as a resource before and after like silicon you know, chips, yeah, yeah. right? Um, or even consider coal as a resource before and after the steam engine, right? Um, I mean, even oil, uh, you know, oil really uh, oil became super useful when we had chemical uh, techniques to um, to refine the oil. Right, crude oil you get out of the ground is the sludge that has all sorts of crap mixed together. Um, it's not super useful. Uh, you don't want to just burn it. Um, but if you apply chemical techniques, you can refine it into different uh, weights and fractions, and uh, and different ones are good for different things. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you get kerosene and gasoline and yeah. you know all the different all the different things that we use. Um, so uh, so ultimately. Um, uh, you know, the, the greatest resource is is the human mind, right? Is reason and intelligence. And as long as we have matter and energy at our disposal, like we're going to be able to do something with that given the right knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of the, so you know the Simon Ehrlich bet? Yep. So, you know, um, Paul Ehrlich makes this bet that the price, if I remember right, of like five precious metals or something um, will go up in some time period. Yep. And Simon let him pick the metals. He's right. like, pick any right, right. five metals you want, pick a basket <laughs> of them, right? And, you know, of course, you know, it turns out that I think the price of like at least three of them went down, not because we discovered more metals, but because presumably we innovated, um, you know, came up with new technologies to like extract the metals. Okay. Um, yep. And Simon, of course, wrote, I mean, as well, talking about resources, Simon wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource, right. which is about, you know, largely about this phenomenon, yeah. right? And the point of that was that the ultimate resource is our intelligence. But the thing I didn't know until recently about that bet is that um, Ehrlich proposed a second bet, which was not so much looking at prices, but looking at kind of more first order measures. So things like, you know, concentration of carbon dioxide and average temperatures or something. And Simon refused the bet. And I think it like really nicely draws out the difference between, look, on one hand, these people are correct that in fact, you know, certain resources may be depleting. In fact, these kind of first order measures, you know, might be changing in the way they expect. Um, It just misses that the things we really care about, (laughs) those are the kinds of problems we can innovate our way out of, right? And, and you know the um, the thing with fertilizer is really just one example of a of a, a major trend that was going on in the 19th century, which was that um, 
there was a major shift away from uh, especially sort of biological resources and towards much more abundant uh, mineral resources. Mm -hmm. So um, kerosene, right, is an example, right? We were using um, uh, whale oil uh, for lighting, right, and, and candles. And so we had these fats and oils from plant and animal sources for lighting. And then we switched to kerosene, which was, uh, and so, you know, we managed to avoid driving the sperm whales to extinction, right? Yeah. Um, and there were uh, similar things with uh, pl uh, plastic. So before plastic, you know, what did we use when you when you, we needed some sort of a lightweight, insulating, uh, you know, waterproof kind of thing? Well, um, very often it would be animal parts, horns, bones, sh tortoise shell combs, for instance, uh, uh, ivory, right? So knife handles and umbrella handles and all kinds of things. Billiard balls in particular were made from elephant tusks. And in order to get the billiard ball uh, just like perfectly weighted so it would roll on the table like you had to make it out of the center of the tusk so it was kind of wasteful um, and again these elephants were getting hunted to extinction um, and there was a, you know there was sort of like a risk to the billiards industry and again <laughs> right. before electric lighting or before plastic I could truthfully claim that we cannot um, you know sustain this level of you know oil lamps or billiard balls before we very quickly ran out of whales or elephants right so you'd be like yeah sure that's, that's correct what I'm missing there is that the thing I ultimately care about isn't whale oil lamps it's lighting and we can come up with new ways of lighting my room or playing playing billiards right i think it's like maybe worth like emphasizing as well that like this like human ingenuity or like this like sudden breakthrough thing isn't like entirely random um like either there is like i think a lot of this kind of like boils down to like a question of like are these things like kind of self-correcting in a way where um, you have a problem um, because you're running out of like this resource which provides this like really important function and then the this problem like grows and grows and like a solution to this problem becomes even more valuable which like incentivizes a lot more like resources to like try and like solve it and at some point uh, you know we put in so many resources we put so many of our like best minds uh, at work to like try and solve it and then this seems to like yeah like really work um, for like a lot of like problems as we've just discussed and I guess like the skepticism around this is like does this also work for problems that are just like on a much like larger scale where maybe these like incentives for these resources to uh, like dive into these problems uh, like aren't as great as Finn said with like CO2 concentrations just because like the damages that like climate change maybe incurs are like 100, 200 years um, or because you know when it comes to like animal extinction it's I mean there's like an open question I don't know if like the concern was about like um, elephants or uh, like sperm whales like in particular uh, whether it was like advocacy groups for like sperm whales who were like trying to incentivize uh, or like invent like new methods of lighting or it was like a business problem uh, but I think that like are also like maybe like yeah like market failure questions or things to like think about um, whether that like self-correcting loop also works for like these other problems uh, or not. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you're absolutely right that there is a there is a feedback loop in that the more something becomes a problem and the more the the more intense it is and the more imminent it is, the more people's attention is directed towards the problem. That happens through a, a number of different ways. There are uh, like market mechanisms, economic mechanisms. Uh, in the case of the billiard balls, um, someone actually like from a billiards company actually put out a, like a prize, announced something like ten thousand dollars, and this is in like late eighteen hundreds money, so it's like a lot of money. Uh, $10,000 in gold, you know, to somebody who could like come up <laughs> with a, with a substitute for ivory and make, right. you know, billiards and people, you know, people were working on it. And this is actually, I think where, um, uh, celluloid, uh, came from, or like the earliest, like proto plastic material, even though it didn't end up, uh, replacing, uh, uh, ivory for billiards in particular, um, you know, it was, was in part motivated by this, uh, contest as I recall. 
Oh, and I think kerosene was a similar thing, right? Where there was just a, uh, uh, where there, there was, it was seen that there was a business opportunity, right? Um, uh, sometimes it is uh, more just at the level of people raising awareness, right? So the William Crooks thing, he gave this speech about the fertilizer at, uh, he was like president of the British Association of Sciences or Academy of Sciences, I forget the, the name of it at the time. And, you know, the president gives an annual address. And so he just used this opportunity. He's like, I got a bunch of people listening to me. I'm going to give this speech about the wheat problem, you know. Um, and so sometimes it's just through communication and uh, raising awareness, right, that that can happen, especially if if it's not just an economic proposition, right, but you need to turn the attention of scientists, uh, you know, or, or researchers to the problem, which is what needed to happen here. Um, but I, I, I do you think that there is something really underrated, underappreciated about how much we can accomplish if we start throwing resources at the problem. Mm -hmm. And let me uh, take this to uh, uh, something that is uh, uh, much less historical and is, is much closer to all of us. Um, what happened uh, uh, in the last two years with COVID? So we got a vaccine for COVID in absolute record time, uh, you know, nor typically from the identification of a pathogen to like the approval of a vaccine takes you know, like a decade on the order. And we got, we got multiple vaccines in less than a year. What happened? Well, okay. So there are a number of different ways you can look at this. One way you can look at it is from a science and technology angle, which is that we had this new technology that had, we'd been developing for decades, this MRNA stuff. It allowed us to create new vaccines very quickly. And so they were getting tested right away. You know, you might almost ask why we didn't even have it sooner. Um, but there, I think there's another angle on this which is underappreciated, which is um, if you go to the Michael Milken Institute, they have a, a tracker uh, where they tracked all of the vaccine uh, efforts and also all of the like pharmaceutical efforts to try to find cures um, and, and therapies uh, for COVID. And there are hundreds. There were like close to 300 vaccine efforts and over 300, I think, therapeutical efforts that they were tracking. And it's just when you get so many parallel efforts, right, from so many, uh, right, and, and people are trying like every known vaccine technique against this thing. And we've got all this redundancy and different labs and different, like, yeah, a few of them are going to come, th come through and, and a few of them are going to come through sooner rather than later. So, um, I just think there's an, a lot of progress that we can make against a problem when it becomes the world's number one problem, right? right? And yeah. everyone acknowledges that and sees it, and there's just tons of resources flowing into it. And the whole scientific and engineering community is, is focused on it. Yeah, I guess the story of COVID vaccines, it becomes obvious that governments will be like primary buyers for vaccines if they get developed. Like enormous sucking sound as pharmaceutical companies realize the incentives, but then... Maybe there are times where there's like a less clear story about the kind of market pull, but nonetheless, it's very good, right? So it's like, you know, when there are externalities um, or just like there aren't big buyers. So one example is vaccines in like poorer countries. You might think maybe this is actually like especially kind of, there's like an especially exciting opportunity to do like a kind of good there because you can just create the incentives yourself if you care enough. So like an example is that as far as I understand, um, DNA vaccines versus mRNA vaccines, they're not quite as good on a lot of measures, but they're much more shelf stable. So like especially good for transporting around hot countries, um, haven't really been developed because they're like enormous incentives weren't there. But you can just like notice that, create your own incentive and then like throw resources at it in just the same way. And I don't know, I'm like kind of hopeful that maybe we'll see a bunch of DNA vaccines soon and just like um, solve the rest of the, the COVID problem. 
Yeah, and I think that um, one general mechanism that is underappreciated, underused is uh, is the the advanced market commitment or the uh, uh, or more broadly maybe demand pull yep. um, type of mechanisms where uh, you basically I mean so. Okay, I'll frame it this way. You got a bunch of money and you want to do something, you know, for a problem. Well, so one way you can use money to try to solve the problem is by giving grants to people who are going to do you solve the problem, right? Or by just investing directly in solving the problem yourself. Um, and that uh, that can work and that can be good, uh, but it also requires uh, picking winners um, and or managing the process uh, and sometimes risks micromanaging the process. Another thing you can do is just to uh, announce and make a credible commitment to being the purchaser for these things if someone should come up with them, right? So you could say, uh, and, and this is a thing that has um, prevented vaccines from uh, getting developed in the past, right? So we've had other coronavirus uh, uh, epidemics in the past, right? We had SARS, we had MERS. And uh, in, I think in each case, you know, pharma companies started thinking about like, should we try to develop a vaccine for this thing? And they just didn't know how big it was going to get. They didn't know how long the epidemic was going to last, if it was going to become a pandemic, which it didn't in those cases, right? It didn't become global. Um, they didn't know if there was going to be a market for it. They didn't know who would buy, right? And so there's just this hesitancy to invest. Um, one way you could think about this, by the way, is you could think, oh, we need to provide a profit incentive. Um, you know, um, I actually think about it slightly differently. I think, um, like, the researchers and even, I mean, the pharma companies, like, they almost don't need an incentive to solve the problem. They just need an excuse, uh, right? Like... I mean, I think they would love to solve the problem, but they can't justify it if it's not if if an enormous investment isn't going to get repaid, right? So if you can just you can just say, no, look, look, your investment will not go to you're not going to lose tons of money by by diving into this problem, right? The money is there. Um, then I think uh, then I think lots of people are, are motivated to you know to use. Wait, the so I'm not fully clear. So the, there's some difference between an excuse and an incentive, which I think. I missed that. Maybe it's a subtle, maybe it's a subtle distinction. I just think that in general, um, and and maybe this is a bit of a tangent also from from the previous topic. So yeah. sorry, <laughs> okay, but I think, but I think that in general, um, especially scientists and engineers are like they're motivated by solving problems, um, and so the role of um, I think the role of uh, of profit mechanisms and even like intellectual property protection and so forth, right, is, le is less to sort of stoke the fires of like monetary greed oh, yeah. and it is more to um, provide a financing mechanism to allow for a rational monetary investment in the in the science and engineering. Yeah, yeah. so it's like giving permission to the scientists to do the thing they already care about doing. Like scientists rarely wake up in the morning like, oh my God, I make so much money and I just have to solve these problems. Right, I mean, look, so when COVID became the world's number one problem, right, every researcher who could do who could in any way sort of help with the problem, I'm sure was thinking about, or the vast majority of them, right? We're just thinking about how can I help, right? I think I think to like maybe challenge this a little bit, there is like a big question though, of, well, what do we mean with the world's number one problem? And like, what gets to be the world's number one problem? I think in no small part, the reason why COVID became like the number one problem is because it affected the US and uh, Western countries a lot too. 
there is definitely just like in vaccine or pharmaceutical history or stuff like just this big problem that like a lot of global health issues just don't get prioritized because there isn't a market there or because it isn't as profitable. I mean, like in many ways, the EA movement came out of this like simple equation of you look at how many dallies a cause costs, you look at like how much funding there is and like some things like uh, cancer or other things are like more prevalent in the West or with consumers that have money get way more attention than problems like malaria or tuberculosis that like don't and that don't have maybe like the resources to make this the world's number one priority. Even if on DALI terms, like year on year, or if you take the long run view or something, it is like definitely more costly um, than, than other issues. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, ultimately, look, ultimately, if, if you are a person with money uh, or an institution, right, you, like, you have to decide what your priorities are. Right. Um, uh, all I'm saying is that uh, I mean, occasionally something does become the top priority for the entire world, right? right. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and then it's sort of clear. Um, but you know, other than that, right there, I mean, there are different problems, and uh, it's not clear that there is really a, um, a a a strict ranking of the problems, even, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, like, in some ways, and I don't want to like labor too too long on the point, but it's again a question of like how much of this like frontier advancement like kind of trickles us because you can definitely tell a story of like well if we advance mRNA technology for like whatever reason, um, be it COVID or be it like some other like concern that um, is incentivized by. Um, you know, like willing consumers or like, like just buy like big markets in the US or their NIH or like what kind of have you, then that just makes like vaccine development like on the whole just like a bunch cheaper and that will like trickle down. Um, or, you know, like it just like helps advance, yeah, like science as a whole and like helps like other like breakthroughs like down the line that will then like go on to like help with malaria or with um, like what kind of have you. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a, a big question like for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there are lots of uh, there are lots of important problems in the world. Some of them affect some people. Some of them affect different people. What problem you know you personally want to work on, or you personally want to fund, or whatever is like is, in my opinion, more of a personal choice. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, and people can choose to solve you know problems in all sorts of different places. They're all valid problems. Yeah. There's some like meta point that I feel like I'm picking up on, which is um, there's like a interesting difference between, for instance, grants and prizes, where when you establish a prize, you're like, you're describing the problem and then you're kind of giving people permission to go and solve this well-defined problem. And what matters is the endpoint. And when you're giving a grant, maybe there's some more of a feeling that <laughs> this will get cut, I'm sure. <laughs> there's like more of a feeling that you're kind of just, you know, keep doing the work you're doing. We really care about it with less of a view to the thing we care about is like getting from here, but we don't have a solution to the solution, and that's what ultimately matters. Does that make sense? As a kind of yeah, I mean, I do something? think I do think that um, you know when does it make sense to use grants, and when does it make sense to use prizes or advanced market commitments or something? Yeah, it does depend in part on. Um, uh, do you think you know what the form of the solution looks like? And do you think you could identify who might do it? Or, you know, like the more uncertainty there is around there, the more it could come from anywhere and it could take any form, the more it makes sense maybe to pay for outcomes. Um, yeah, there's a there's an interesting history actually of prizes. Um, and there's, uh, I was looking at one whole website, a whole, it had a whole list of kind of like major technological and scientific developments that have been, um, well, that that won prizes, at least whether or not they were directly motivated by them. But like um, the invention of canning, uh, right? So the technique of like sealing something in a can and then like um, uh, heating it to to kill the microbes in it and and using you know to to fr make fresh food. Like Napoleon put out a prize for uh, <laughs> yes Napoleon Napoleon right. put out a prize for. Um, uh, a, a technique of basically like preserving food for his military on campaigns, right? And there was some French chef who like who came up with this. Right. Um, 
the uh, Charles Lindbergh's like flight across the Atlantic, right? Solo flight uh, won uh, some sort of a prize that somebody had put out. Um, uh, some of Louis Pasteur's work on um, uh, some of his work in kind of the run up to the germ theory, specifically when he was um, Pasteur essentially um, uh, kind of disproved once and for all the spontaneous generation theory. And that particular work, there was like a prize for progress on the spontaneous generation question. And so he won that prize. So there's kind of all these things, uh, you know, throughout history where um, I don't know, I don't know what the counterfactual is. Like, would people have done this stuff without the prize? Who knows? Um, but uh, it's been involved in a number of the major uh, sort of, you know, breakthroughs yep. in history. Incidentally, if anyone's listening and has 10 minutes to look through a Wikipedia page, Louis Pasteur, fascinating figure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, and, and while we're on him, I'll recommend a biography of him that I read, uh, Louis Pasteur, Freelance of Science uh, by René Dubot. Uh, enjoyed, enjoyed that book. Okay, so we've talked a bunch about, I guess, just like the case for progress and like the things that kind of drive it and, and what have you. Um, we've also touched a little bit on, or like teased a little bit at the start of this question of, um, well, is it kind of like drying up, right? Are we like hitting a great stagnation or not? And I think that then naturally takes us to uh, a question around, well, is there anything we can do to either boost scientific advancements actively, maybe through uh, grants and prizes, as, as Finn mentioned? Um, yeah, like what is uh, driving these things? Yeah, I guess like a fairly simple and extremely difficult question. <laughs> is something like, what are the levers to actually boost these kinds of progress, especially growth, and especially over the long run, if you want these kind of exponential differences to kick in? Yeah, where do we look? I don't have a full explanation yet for sort of the causes of progress, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm starting, to get, um, I'm starting to get a view of it. So here's my current you know, incomplete view. Um, I think one thing that's clear to me now is that there are a number of overlapping feedback loops um, that, so I mentioned a little earlier that progress uh, feeds on itself, progress compounds, right? So many forms of progress lead to faster progress. And this is true at multiple levels, um, and all of the following levels are true simultaneously. Um, so first off, just technology itself can often make technological development faster. Um, Obviously, communication technology, for instance, the better we get at, at writing down knowledge and ideas and communicating them, um, the, the faster people can exchange ideas and learn and then you know, find out what applies to their situation. Okay. Um, uh, slightly less obviously, as we um, create transportation networks, we get larger markets, right? And larger markets can drive, um, you know, more kinds of progress. Um, when we come up with fundamental innovations like manufacturing technology, the Development of precision manufacturing, especially around the 19th century, was a fundamental enabler of many other, um, you know, types of uh, many types of machines, and therefore, you know, many types of progress. And so, um, you get a lot of these things. Now, not everything feeds directly back into progress, but many things do. Okay, so that's at the technology level. Um, at a broader kind of economic level, just like. Building up surplus wealth gives us more to invest in R&D um, and to invest in new ventures and so forth, right, which then makes progress happen faster, which builds up more surplus wealth. So that's another reinforcing loop. Um, I mentioned earlier the uh, a sort of obvious one of science, right? Um, uh, science gives us uh, advanced technologies, and then technologies can feed back into uh, making science happen faster, um, whether that's through new types of instruments, large hadron colliders, um, LIGO, uh, uh, you know, space telescopes or just the internet, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, archive and PDFs and, you know, all, all, all of that stuff. Google Scholar, you know, all those things. Um, 
So uh, there's also, uh, I think, a there's a, a, a feedback loop at the very deep level of like philosophy. Um, so for a long time, people didn't believe in progress because like they didn't think it was possible or desirable. And part of that was because they hadn't seen much of it. Um, and if you go back and look, where did the modern idea of progress originate? It really kind of originates in the West around the time of Bacon, uh, Francis Bacon. And you look at writers of that time, like what were they looking at? Like why did they think that progress was possible? It's actually because they saw a, a few key instances of it. Um, so one was the voyages of discovery, generally the, the, the age of discovery, like opening up the world. Um, entire new continents had gotten discovered uh, and new trade routes. There was more international trade now, and this was making people wealthier. But then there were also inventions. So um, the compass gunpowder, the printing press, right? Big things like this um, uh, sort of made people realize, oh, wow, here are some inventions that we didn't have for thousands of years. And even the revered ancients, right? In in, in Europe, right? That would be the, like the Greeks and the Romans who were looked at as these this race of like giants who, uh, you know, and these super wise people who had this, you know, knowledge that was lost and we're just beginning to rediscover it now. And we haven't even built a huge Colosseum like they did. And right. Yeah. Um, so there was this notion that maybe like they were greater, they were like better than we are. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and 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 that started to change um, as they realized, oh, okay, well, they, yeah, they, sure, the Romans had all, you know, this like formulas for cement that we lost for a thousand years, but uh, they didn't know about the Americas, yeah. and they didn't have the printing press, and you know, and so forth. The printing press, in particular, Bacon called out. He was kind of like, yeah, you know, like the compass, gunpowder, these things. Maybe you need like a sort of some aha insight, you know, or you need some special knowledge that oh, this special kind of you know chemical has this reaction. Um, but the printing press, he's like, the printing press kind of should have been obvious, shouldn't it? It's really just a mechanical invention. Why didn't we come up with this before? And so, and so that made Bacon, uh, like, it's, it's sort of funny, but that made him optimistic, right? Yeah. Because he's like, look, guys, there's nothing standing in our way, right? We can just do this. And so um, now today we've had, uh, now it took centuries for like people to really sort of believe this and, um, uh, and for it not to just be kind of this conviction among a few elite intellectuals and, and scientists maybe, but to percolate out to the world. But today it's it's unmistakable, right? Um, uh, and part of, and because now we can see progress happening in our lifetimes. So, you know, a few hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, right, people were pretty much died in the same world they were born into, right? They did not see the world change in their lifetimes. And now we see the world changing every decade or two, right? There are major things, right? Um, you know, just, just, I mean, you know, anybody who's who's my age now, right, just grew up in a world basically, you know, without the internet or with almost no internet, right? right? Yeah. And, and now the internet absolutely rules uh, the world. So maybe like looking to the present day or looking to like the near future, like what do you see as like maybe being some of the like potential, like really exciting ideas that could be part of these like feedback loops or could even create like these, these new feedback loops potentially? Are there like any technologies or um, ideas or like institutional reforms that like stand out as just like deserving a lot more like attention or focus or yeah, becoming possibly even the world's number one priority? So, um, 
So I have a few ideas for why progress might have slowed down in the last 50 years or so, and what and and the flip side of that, what we might want to address mm. um, to uh, to to keep progress going or accelerate it. Um, so I'll start with the most fundamental, which is what I sort of just discussed, like the very idea of progress, and um, and what I've termed the philosophy of progress, people's kind of fundamental attitudes towards it, um, which I think were very positive up until the the early 20th century, and then um, the the world, or at least the West kind of soured on progress in, in, a, in a key way uh, through the course of the 20th century. Right. And now I think we're very conflicted about it, right? I think people are very, uh, have very mixed yeah. feelings about technology. Can you maybe technology. speak a bit, a bit more to that? Like, yeah, what was it that, that soured or how have attitudes changed there? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, it was a number of strains of thought, but I think uh, the sort of the key historical turning point really was the world wars. Mm. Um, and... So before the world wars, you see, people are very optimistic, not only about the progress of science and technology, but also about progress in morality and society. And they saw those two as going hand in hand. And so if you think from the perspective of 1913, right, what had happened in the last 100 or 200 years? Well, again, monarchy had fallen many places in the world, right? We're replacing it with democratic republics. Um, uh, uh, we had ended slavery in the West. Uh, there were, after the end of the Franco-Prussian War, there was a period of relative peace in in, uh, in Europe for you know, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, people, some people started to think, oh, well, with the expansion of industry, the growth of trade between nations, um, nations aren't going to want to go to war so much. You know, everybody's got plenty of, of goods now and we're all trading with each other. And then like the telegraph comes along and people are like, wow, this is great. We can communicate now. There will be no more misunderstandings because we can because we can communicate across borders and and so people were optimistic that like we were on a, the verge of a new era of world peace mm. and then the world wars hit and it's a cataclysm right and it is a uh, it is it is a blow to uh, to the optimists and right. it is a blow it's a challenge to the idea of progress that that seems like particularly surprising to me because I think especially World War Two or like at least the aftermath of World War Two often gets cited as this like really big like reflection point which kind of in turn actually like sparked a lot of like modern day growth right if you think about where the internet or like where computing and stuff came from a lot of that kind of like originated from technologies developed in the war or like subsidized after the war if you think about like human rights for example as well like that in large part is like a huge progress right like or advancement in terms of like social uh you know like or human like values and stuff and really came out of like the dark period of the war as well right like i don't know like i maybe want to like challenge that that notion a bit I mean, good things uh, can come out of adversity, right? Um, which doesn't justify the adversity or mean that it was net good, even. Um, but it just means that you know humans can pull can pull good things out of yeah. out of almost anything, right? Um, uh, yeah, but so but but coming back to the the idea of what did this mean for sort of people's idea about progress itself, right? I think through the world wars, people saw that oh well, certainly technology is not automatically leading to moral progress. It yeah. certainly didn't lead to an end of war. In fact, it made for much more horrific, destructive, deadly war, right? Um, and if this wasn't obvious through World War One, it, it became absolutely obvious during World War Two, right? right? So is, so perhaps just like stating like the obvious of what you just said, but like you know, war might be like. Um, 
innovative or like it might like generate new technologies, but there's nothing inherent of like these new technologies being created, even like in the post-war time, these being good, right? Like if you think about developing of like nuclear weapons or like what kind of have you, it is not obvious that progress will lead to like better human welfare. And so there's a new consciousness um, after the wars of, well, is this technology going to get used for good, right? And are we going to use it um, uh, in, a, in a wise and prudent way? Are we going to, you know, um, right? Are we going to be, um, are we going to be good or evil with it? Are we going to be uh, foolish, uh, foolish or, and reckless with it or, or, or prudent? Um, and, you know, I mean, to some extent that consciousness is good. Um, however, I think it also, um, it, it was a, a setback for the proponents of progress. And in a way it opened up um, kind of room for some reactionary views that had always been around since the very beginnings of, of the industrial revolution uh, or even or even before. Um, but a number of people came forward with um, a new set of explanations. So the thing about history is um, historic, you know, People react to events, but their reactions, I believe, are not are contingent. Right? They're not determined by the events. There are multiple ways to interpret any sort of historical thing, and so people will come forward with different. And so, when there's a major event like the wars, you have this period where there are a number of competing interpretations, right? And different people looking at the same events in different ways and trying to say what it means and where we go forward. And what happened in the West in the mid 20th century was um, a number of explanations came forward that uh, were based on a very deep distrust of the entire project of modernity and the entire and certainly of um, technology and industry right and so they took some of the concerns from the war and then those got fused with a number of other concerns um, uh, like poverty and inequality right is all of the is all of this wealth that we're creating sort of getting distributed fairly um, uh, pollution and the environment, right? Like, what are we what are we doing to the world around us? Um, uh, is that going to be good for us? Do we have any right to do it? And so, all of this kind of fused into um, some of the countercultural movements, um, in, in some way into the environmentalist movement, right? right? And so, there were a number of, um, uh, of of these interpretations that just said, look, this whole project of like trying to move the world forward with science and technology is mistaken. Mm -hmm. uh, let's stop it, or at least let's slow it way down. Let's return to nature return to our roots, return to tradition, return to family and community, return to whatever you can put what X is whatever romantic romanticized thing you want to return to that you that you imagine was better in the past. And so I think we are still struggling with this today. Right. right we're, yeah. we're, we're in a, the, again, the world is very conflicted. On the one hand, I think people can see many ways in which technology does make their lives better. Um, people love their iPhones. The, a lot of people will even, um, you know, make a hero out of somebody like Elon Musk and, uh, and all of his ambitious ventures. And yet at the same time, they're worried that robots are going to take all their jobs. They're worried that, um, Climate change is going to destroy civilization, um, right? They're worried about a lot of these. Right? So there's a, there's a claim here which seems like a really big deal if it's true, and I have no idea how to think about it. So it, it sounds like you are saying something like um, how things pan out depends importantly and causally on like people's attitudes and beliefs about progress, like what kind of progress is possible. Are certain kinds of progress actually desirable in the first place? So how, what's the, how do we start thinking? What's the evidence that the causality goes the other way and like attitudes actually matter for what happens in the world at the frontier. So I think causality goes both ways. Right? Yeah, so I think the sure, relationship sure. is reciprocal and, and that's why I say it's a feedback loop. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I, certainly the more, again, the more progress happens, the more people are going to believe in it. The more the progress seems to be good, the more people are going to think it's, it's desirable. Right. Um, but then okay, you say, okay, what is the evidence that it goes the other way? Um, I mean, so first, like, let me just 
appeal to you directly and to and to each listener individually just like introspect for a moment like doesn't what you do in the world depend on what you believe is a possible and be desirable to do right like we are guided by our ideas about these things um and then i think um when you look at okay so uh, again you look at the history of these things right like how many thousands and thousands of years went by with most people kind of like not coming up with new and better ways of doing things, right? Like why did that change so much recently? Um, again, you can look at it from all of these different um, uh, levels, right? You can look at the impact, the compounding influence, you know, impact of technology or of wealth um, or of the growth of science and so forth. And again, I think all of those are true, but then I think the, that the level of, of ideas and guidance is also true. Um, uh, again, note like uh, uh, some of this 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 fundamental notion that we that this progress is possible and desirable. It goes all the way back to the early 1600s, right? It goes back to writings like Bacon, like long before it. it really started happening in much of any significant degree, right? People believed in it and they were, I, I think they were pursuing it because they believed in it. Another, so another thing I'll point to is um, uh, Anton Howes, uh, who writes about economic history, has a good blog. Um, he has done some work on, uh, he, he looked into, I think it was a set of like some 14 or 1500 uh, inventors, like English, British inventors from, uh, a, a period of about three centuries. I think it was roughly like 1550 to 1850 or so. And he just kind of went a little bit into every one of their uh, life stories. What did they invent? Where where did they grow up? And how did they get into inventing and so forth? And he found in many, many cases that they had some contact, some prior contact with another inventor before they began inventing. Mm -hmm. uh, it could have been a family member. It could have been someone in their village, you know, whatever. But, and so, uh, and so he came up with this hypothesis that like maybe invention is sort of contagious. Like maybe the idea of invention is something that you have to, you know, once you see somebody else do it, you know, you are, you are more likely to do it themselves. And he noted, by the way, it didn't, it, it, it's not just, um, it wasn't just like there was technical training because sometimes somebody would maybe have contact with a mechanical inventor and then they would go on to become a chemical inventor or something. So it was like, it wasn't, they weren't necessarily in the same field. It seemed to be more of a general, um, a, 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 just a general influence of like, yeah, tinkering with stuff is cool and fun and maybe you'll, you'll come up with something new and useful. Got it. And I guess I, so other evidence, maybe something like, well, some of the great innovators from the last 50 years are like also sci-fi nerds. Maybe there's something there. Absolutely. You also yeah. get like kind of um, concentrations, like geographical concentrations of innovation. Yes. Like for instance, like Florence, if you're going that far back, yep. Vienna and like uh, more recently like the Bay. Maybe that has something to do with just the attitudes. Yeah. Uh, you also get dynasties and families, yep. um, which could just be something more than like passing down technical knowledge. Um, but also, yeah, you know, look at just look at um, uh, the institutions that drive this stuff forward, right? I mean, go, yeah. you know, go back and look at like MIT or Johns Hopkins or something, right, or some university. And um, uh, I'm specifically naming ones that were kind of uh, maybe found in like the 1800s. But um, mm -hmm. uh, but you can look at uh, like why did they get started, right? What did they say about themselves when they were getting started? Like what was the project? And very often, like they have this very explicit project, right? We are going to have better technical training better knowledge and it will ultimately read or um read veneever bush's 1945 uh or as we may think yeah uh no 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 oh. um 
I mean, that one was good too, but I'm specifically thinking of Science, the Endless Frontier. So this was his like post-World War II or just very end of World War II kind of manifesto. I mean, it was a report to the president was the, the form of it, but he wrote about um, why the U.S. should invest in science and technology and basic research mm-hmm. and how important this was going to be to prosperity and security and, and you know, everything good for the country. Yeah. Um, and so it was a very explicit, um, uh, you know, motivation right yeah. there. Yeah. I think there's definitely some to like different attitudes and like responding to problems just like in general. I kind of like want to pick up on like what you mentioned there with like way before with like the climate and like environmentalist example. I think this is like to flag like somewhat of a false dichotomy, but I think it's like a, a useful intuition problem. There are like two like very stark reactions you can have to this. One being this like degrowth, we just need to like stop progress and like halt it. And this other reaction being like, oh shit, we need to actually double down on progress and just like invent a ton of advancement in solar, nuclear, battery, restructure the economy and stuff. And actually it's just a call for like more progress and stuff as well, right? And I think that like framing or reaction is like, Interesting, not just on an individual level, but as you said, like on an institutional level and like how governments think about this too, right? With really influential decisions on R&D or regulation or like what can I have you? Yeah, it's like running down a steep hill. You can't stop running now. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess another thing that's like occurring to me is like what would be the experiment you could run to like find out whether this is true if you could like, you know, if you were, if you could just like create duplicate worlds. So maybe you could imagine like you're seeding like classical civilization with kind of, like Atlantis style myths about civilizations with <laughs> like developed technology or maybe um, just like biographies of tinkerers. Um, maybe, you know, if you run those two parallel parallel versions of, you know, ancient Greece or Rome or something, maybe there'd be like very different outcomes or even like ancient China. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, yeah. So, I mean, obviously you can't, uh, you can't do the RCT. Um, <laughs> and, and so the way, I mean, I think part of the way that we have to learn and sort of test hypotheses in this way is not through RCTs, but through um, comparisons uh, uh, across time and across space, right? So you look at different countries and, and regions and you look at different um uh, so one book that does uh, some of this is the book A Culture of Growth by Joel McKeer, who's an economic historian, and it is specifically about this idea of progress, how it got established, um, and how it uh, and how it did affect the Industrial Revolution. Um, and uh, he makes some contrasts to China as an example. Um, so looking at Europe versus China, and like what were you know was there a concept of progress in China? You know, and um, uh, and, and was there the same? You know, a a, a sort of unique, uh, unprecedented spirit kind of grew up in Europe around the time of the Reformation uh, uh, and, and the, the scientific revolution and so forth, um, where ideas could be tested, uh, uh, right? Where there was a, there had all, in, in most places and times, there's a lot of reverence for tradition and authority. And so uh, sort of, you know, modern uh, Western Europe is sort of the, uh, is sort of the exception to the rule geographically and, and historically, right? A time when for, for pretty much the first time, people just stopped giving quite so much weight to tradition and authority and allowed there to be, uh, to, for, for those ideas to be challenged and tested by experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it just kind of reminds me, our very first ever like podcast episode oh, yeah. was on the Industrial Revolution, where I think there was a fair bit of a time spent talking about Mokya and his ideas. I think also this thing of just like, kind of just accepting that you can even do things, right? Like, or that you can like change the world, right? So if you like, you know, lightning strikes or like there's a drought or something, um, rather than like just blaming it on like the gods or like what kind of have you, like actually taking like ownership and thinking about, well, what can you do to like prepare yourself against that like next time rather than just saying it's kind of fate. Yeah, um, and part of that was the development of 
of uh, of uh, probability and statistics. Right. right? Yeah. 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 Um, to take a contrast, uh, so the ancient Greeks, for instance, you know, were very sort of intellectually curious and active, and um, and were uh, maybe not um, maybe not tradition bound, but they did not have the concept that all of their intellectual curiosity was going to actually improve the useful arts. Mm. So they didn't see a connection between like science and the economy. Uh, and that is really one of the new unique things that comes in with, uh, with Bacon and others around his time is the idea that um, this knowledge is actually going to be useful. We can improve arts and manufacturers and uh, maybe agriculture and so forth, right, with the right knowledge. That was a really key uh, uh, breakthrough that was, you know, that, that led to the motivation to do all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I suggest, this is like super fascinating. I think we can talk like another hour about this. Um, I definitely want to make sure we get to, or leave enough time for like the long-termism and like security stuff. But before we do that, I really want to hit the like, our ideas becoming harder to find thing. So let's maybe just like tackle that straight on and let me ask our ideas becoming harder to find. In an important way, yes. Um, so there is an economics paper with this title, Our Ideas Becoming Harder to Find. Um, it's a very interesting paper with a maybe slightly unfortunate title because I think that the, that phrase was very is a, is a catchy phrase, but it can be a little <laughs> misleading because what is an idea and what does it mean to find an idea and what does it mean for ideas to be easier or harder to find? Those are all... Okay, so you can quantify this. So what the... So if you want... I would suggest um, scrap that idea for a moment. What the paper actually looked at was... Is it taking more investment to create to to sustain exponential uh, economic growth, right? Um, and so, and the and and the answer was they they looked at data from a number of different you know places and, and concluded yes. So an example is like Moore's law. So um, uh, so in Moore's law, you've got um, transistor density, you know, doubling on chips every whatever um, you know constant increment of time, um, whatever, two years or something. And uh, how many researchers do you need to keep Moore's law going? Well, it turns out you need like an exponentially increasing investment in, in silicon R&D to keep that exponential uh, growth in, in, um, in chip density going. And so uh, there, are, and there are a number of other um, things like this, where if you, you have this um, exponentially increasing investment uh, in order to maintain exponential growth in some, you know, key metric or something, and um, so this was the idea of uh, quote unquote ideas getting harder to find. It is taking more and more investment to sustain, you know, more and more growth. Why does this um, ultimately matter? Well, so. Uh, so some people point to this and say either to this paper or just to this general concept, um, and they say like, okay, maybe this is the explanation for why there might be some technological stagnation, um, right? Uh, and, and you can again, even without the data in this paper, you can sort of just get an intuitive like sense of of, of why this might be. Um, there's this notion of we pick low hanging fruit, right? So you come to some area and. Um, uh, certainly in science, right? Like it used to be you could discover fundamental laws of physics sort of playing around with like magnets and wires on your kitchen table. And now um, uh, you need to build like the Large Hadron Collider or LIGO or the James Webb Space Telescope or something, right? These are huge multi-billion dollar, you know, projects. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe similar things with like um, 
you know, you invent the airplane and like there's some really obvious thing. Okay, that was a huge leap. And there's some really obvious things to do in the beginning. Like maybe we should make the airplanes out of metal instead of wood and canvas. Mm -hmm. And we should give them, you know, more powerful engines and, and, you know, some things like this. And you, you know, but then like eventually it gets harder and harder to figure out like, well, how do we make airplanes better? Right. And then maybe you hit uh, uh, physics limits like this, like the sound barrier. Right. And so now it's it's like hard to go beyond the sound, but, you know, obviously not impossible, but, you you know, uh, but, but that's a limitation for some planes. And so, so it's just like at a certain point, you've you've exhausted the obvious things to do. So you you say, okay, we've picked all the low hanging fruit. I don't think this is a sufficient. Okay, so there's a couple of so there's a couple of ways you could go with this. One you could one way you could go with this is you could say, well, therefore, progress is going to slow down. Uh, the pro- the fast progress we've seen in the last couple hundred years is this historical aberration. Uh, we got lucky. We're never going to see it again. Don't hope to maintain that into the future. Uh, get used to stagnation here on out, right? Um, or another thing you could say is like you could at least say, well, uh, this is an explanation for maybe why we've started to see some you know slowing down of progress in the last fifty years. I don't think it's enough, and the reason is that. As ideas get harder to find, quote unquote, we also get better at finding them and we get more powerful tools for finding them, right? Or if you want to use the apple or the fruit uh, um, uh, analogy, right? Yes, we pick the low-hanging fruit, um, but then we get ladders to reach the higher fruit, and then eventually we get mechanized fruit pickers, you know, so we get better at picking fruit the higher it gets. And so if you want to explain the pace of technology, I think it's not sufficient to look at one half of this. You have to look at these two counterbalancing forces, right? So yes, as, um, uh, so to go back to like this making progress in science example, um, yeah, now we need LIGO, but also now we have the ability to build LIGO, which we didn't have, you know, maybe 100 or 200 years ago. We have the wealth that it takes to invest in something like LIGO, and we have the science to, you know, to build it, and we have the precision machines that can build it, and we have the computers that can analyze the data and all of this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So we're getting better at making progress at the same time that progress is sort of getting inherently harder to make. Yeah. And, um, by the way, uh, so uh, the low-hanging fruit thing um, it tends to be also that when we open up some new field, right, we make some breakthrough, it opens up like a whole orchard of low, of new low-hanging fruit that we didn't, uh, you know, originally have, yeah. right? So when we, um, you know, you invent computers and it's like all of a sudden, oh, wow, there's all these things that we were doing by hand that now we can do on the computer. It's right. just like yeah, yeah. obvious, right? Um, or you invent the internet and then it's like, cool, there's lots of stuff that should go on the internet now, right? And um, and so, 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 so fundamental breakthroughs open up lots of new low-hanging fruit. And so I think the more interesting thing, rather than looking at any sort of one uh, narrow area of technology and sort of saying, well, this is petering out or this is plateauing, this is, we're, we're, right. we're milking the last bits of it now, right? What you should actually be looking at is like, what is our rate of opening up new fields um, and having new breakthroughs that open up new orchards, yeah, right? right. Um, and is that slowing down, you know? And if so, and if so, why? And right. I think I think that is kind of the you know, the more interesting thing. I think if you look at the um, again, sort of like the last fifty years, and has there been a bit of a slowdown? Part of it has been like we've just been. We've been milking uh, some of the the breakthroughs from decades ago, um, not all of them even, but some of them, and uh, and some of them like maybe computing, uh, you know, maybe that is 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 hitting a um, a point where it's it's starting to plateau or starting to hit a bend in the curve. But but why didn't we come up with sort of even more new things to replace, right? Why haven't there been totally new breakthroughs like computing in the last couple of decades that have that have just opened up fresh, you know, green fields? Yeah. I guess I could just to try saying it back for my own benefit. So like, you know, one story you can tell 
about pick the thing you care about, say it's transportation. You want to tell the like history of transportation. Um, often it looks like a series of like S curves, right? So we start with some crude form of, horse, of transportation, like horse-drawn carriage. You get rapid innovation once the um, the technology opens up. Then we reach diminishing returns once we kind of more or less, you know, perfect the horse-drawn carriage just around the time that we invent the combustion engine and so on, right? And then one thing you can do is like look at all those S-curves and be like, look, every example of a technology that's opening up has resulted in um, diminishing returns, ideas getting harder to find, stagnation. So the lesson we should draw is that overall we should expect a similar pattern. We saw this extraordinary period of growth the last century or two. We should expect that entire thing to slow down as well for the same reasons. But um, the suggestion is something like, well, hang on, maybe there can just be a bunch more of these like newer and newer S-curves. And the fact that each curve has this shape doesn't tell us anything about how many possible curves there are or something, how many like breakthroughs there are lying ahead of us. Is that right. roughly the And maybe story? look, maybe you can make some argument that like eventually it has to run out, but um but I think you are mistaken if you are trying to posit any sort of foreseeable end, right? Yeah. Like we're so far away from from right. what the theoretical, you know, uh, end of it might be. Like there's just so there's just so many things that we can't even imagine that um to posit that you have any sort of notion that 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 it could be any kind of foreseeable, you know, near-term time frame is just yeah. is just wrong. I, I really like this idea of like a metrics paper and like maybe listeners will will know of one kind of like looking at this like question of actually seeing like the rate of like breakthrough or like as Finn was saying these like S-curve things presumably it's just harder because these things are like by definition like rarer events and therefore make it like harder to kind of study uh, systematically but it would be yeah like really interesting I do think there is like something really interesting in thinking about this like really abstract or like broad idea of like breakthroughs and like are these becoming like harder or not to find because it just feels really stakesy for this like question of progress as a whole and I think like one interesting way of like framing this is going back to what you were speaking um, before about these like feedback loops and feedback loops can be like very different shapes right they can be like self-sustaining they can be exploding or they can be converging and presumably that matters like a whole bunch um, yeah, for like human progress. And I, I like the frame you kind of gave there as well of like just thinking ahead of like what is possible. And I think like one way that I like to like maybe think of progress studies or like think of this like breakthrough thing is like how much growth should we be expecting to have right now if we could actually get this like going through? Like is this a question of just being able to sustain three or 4% growth that we kind of had back in the like 50s and 60s for yeah. like another 100, 200 years? Or are we talking about something like very radical where like if we're gonna like increase the number of like scientists or like R&D by like 20X, which I think we did in the 20th century. Like if we do that again, should we be expecting growth to accelerate by like 20% or like by, by 20X as well too? Like that feels like very different like kind of worlds we're talking about here. Yeah, well, I mean, going back to the, the ideas getting harder to find paper, like we may have to keep in, in, you know increasing the number of like scientists and researchers just to keep up the three or four percent, you know, economic growth, right? Um, in fact, this is one reason to actually worry about um, population leveling off or even decreasing. Um, at a certain point, like y y it could turn out, we're actually like limited by population um, because there just aren't enough. We, we just need more and more like researchers, uh, scientists, and engineers, kind of on the frontier, pushing things forward in order to keep up exponential growth. And if we don't, um, you know, if we don't have that uh, that many, right? At a certain point, like you can't, you know. 
at a certain point, if your population isn't growing, like you just can't have, um, you know, you can, you, you hit 100% of your population as scientists. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't keep growing from there. Um, so I think, uh, so that's one reason to think about uh, why a number of people who are interested in progress are actually very concerned about population, um, you know, slowing down. Right, right, yeah. And I should maybe like flag as well, like an open borders presumably stuff too, right? Is that like part of it there as well of just like getting more people to have access to this thing or is it just overwhelmingly a, a population thing? Um, uh, I mean, both are relevant, but again, the open borders only takes you so far, right? right? Yeah. Um, that That is like one finite source of maybe of talent, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. right? Um, whereas if, if your population doesn't grow, then you don't, then uh, yeah. right, you, you, you're going to hit some you know limit, talent limit at some point. Have you given this like explicit thought? Do you have like a like number in your head of like how fast could we be growing if we solve these like institutional or like social like problems or shifts? Like if the world really was just like focused on like advancing science as like much as it could and we like dedicated a whole bunch of resources from these like recommendations we kind of spoke a bit before about, like how, how quickly could we be growing? Like consistently or like sustainably? That's a great question. Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. I would look back to what the growth rates were, you know, sometime between about 1870 and 1940 or so, right, um, right in, um, uh, you know, especially in the U.S., which was growing pretty fast in that time, yeah. um, and say, like, that's at least, like, maybe a baseline. Cool. cool. Let's talk about long-term stuff. <laughs> so I'm not sure how exactly to lead into this, but um, on the Roots of Progress website, right, you have this line, like, um, we need a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century, right? Um, and one way you can begin thinking about that question is taking this, like, um, expansive long view when you consider the trajectory that we, we meaning humanity, might eventually take, right? And then you might frame that question as something like, or you might frame the question that progress studies is asking as something like, how do we ultimately achieve, bring about the most progress possible or the progress we're like capable of achieving? Is that what you have in mind when you talk about progress studies? I care about the long term. I think that um, maybe one, so maybe one difference between me and like the most hardcore long-termist um, or maybe two differences. So like one is I do place like non-zero kind of um, moral discount on the future or in terms of like what I care about. I do care about the long-term. I care about posterity, um, but I don't care about it infinitely much um, or I don't, I don't care about, uh, you know, lives like, like 10,000 years from now like, are, are not equally meaningful to me as like my life and the life of people I care about, you know, or, or even just like other, other, other lives today. Um, so, uh, while I think you can't necessarily just apply simplistic kind of econo uh, economic, like, uh, percentage over time, right. Whatever exponential <laughs> discounting, like yeah. that leads to some weird conclusions, but I also don't think you can just apply a zero discount. Um, the other thing is like, I apply some epistemic discounting, uh, whereas it's, it's just super hard to predict stuff, you know, much further out in the future. Right. And so, um, uh, like I can, I feel like by looking at history, maybe I can kind of look into the the, the next decades and, and in even a century or so uh, with some with some clarity. But like a thousand years out, 
a thousand years back, the world was almost unrecognizable, right? Like we, I, we didn't even have the plow, <laughs> <laughs> right? And I mean, the world was just extremely different. Um, and so uh, a thousand years for, and, and, and progress, and then, and there was also not moving very much, right? So like um, the, the different, so a thousand years from now is gonna be even more different from today than today is from a thousand years before. And so totally. it's, just, it's just very difficult to say anything about with certainty, right? So, okay, two points there. Let's, let's talk about the second one first. So the thesis is not, let's try to kind of look forwards to the very far future and kind of trace back in some complicated way how we can kind of influence that, right? In some Rube Goldberg way. It's often something like, um, you know, as much as we can't fill in the details of, you know, the world in a thousand, 10,000 years time, we can trace the broad contours precisely because we can look back and see that we've made all this progress. We can just say in fairly kind of hand-wavy terms, probably the world could be like extraordinarily better. You can imagine spreading beyond Earth, for instance, or creating digital people, like the all bets are off, right? Um, so let's not worry too much about predicting it, but what are the like simple things we can do now to bring that about? You can tell this story, right? Where maybe something like this century could be fairly pivotal just for whether or not that like, broad future even comes about in the first place. And so if you actually like, if you buy into that, you can imagine thinking, um, okay, ultimately maybe I actually do care about achieving all this progress. You know, this century just seems so pivotal that the urgent priority now is just to make sure things go well. Then we can take a sigh of relief, think about the progress stuff. Does that make sense? I'm not saying, do you agree? I mean. <laughs> Does that story like at least seem like internally coherent? Yeah, I totally get the argument, and I'm familiar with it, and um, and I think there's something to it that's even reasonable. Um, and at the, I don't know, to me, at the end of the day, it just it matters. Like, well, what, it just comes down to what, like, what literally are you proposing? Like, what literally do you think we should do? Right? Like you said, well, maybe progress can wait, right? But what do you even like? Like how? It, so suppose, so suppose you took this point of view. Like, what would you even do? How would you use our resources, right? Um, it wouldn't be literally progress waiting because what we need is like at least some specific form of progress. Yeah, totally. Right, totally. Um, sure. Right. So, so if if we're in some vulnerable position, uh, we need some form of progress in um, like like that is a problem to be solved with, you know, ultimately better something better knowledge, maybe better technology, maybe better um, social systems, maybe some combination of all the above, right? Yeah. Um, so the question is, how are you actually gonna tackle the problem? I, I think there's like one thing here of just like breaking progress, which is this like incredibly broad term, just like down into, as you said, like, well, literally like, what does this mean? And I think like there's maybe a thought here of just like thinking harder about what the social consequences of certain technologies are and there's like, one easy way to like, again, draw a like false dichotomy here between like some technologies are like good for human progress and some are bad and we should do the good ones and we should like hold off on the bad ones. And like that probably doesn't work because a lot of technologies have like dual use. Uh, you mentioned like World War II before and like that causing like a lot of skepticisms around progress. On the one hand, like nuclear technologies are like clearly incredibly like destructive and like awful and could have like really bad consequences. And on the other hand are like phenomenal and like really good and can provide like a lot of energy and like like what kind of have you. And we might think the same around like bio and AI, but like maybe the question just here is like, we should think about this stuff harder before we just like go for it or like have more of processes in place um, to have these like 
conversations and discussions and um, yeah, like um, processes maybe to, to navigate this stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, um, like I think we should be smart about how we pursue pro progress and I think we should be wise about it as well. And, um, you know, look, look, let's take bio because that's one, maybe one of the clearest examples and one that actually has a history, right? Like um, over the decades, as we've gotten better and better at genetic engineering, there's actually been a number of points where people one way or another have um, have proposed and actually have gone ahead and done like a pause on research um, and tried to work out better um, safety procedures. Mm. And through that process, um, so like maybe one of the most famous is uh, the Asilomar conference in the 1970s. So right after recombinant DNA um, was invented, um, some people realized that, whoa, we could end up creating some dangerous pathogens here. There's a particular like simian virus uh, that causes cancer that, you know, people started thinking, what if this gets modified and can infect yeah. humans, right? Um, and just more broadly, like there was, there was a clear risk and um, they actually put a moratorium on certain types of experiments. They got together about eight months later. They had a conference. They worked out certain safety procedures. Um, like I haven't researched this deeply, but my understanding is that like that went pretty well in the end. We, we came up with kind of like we didn't have to like ban genetic engineering uh, or like cut off a whole line of research, but also we didn't just like run straight ahead without, um, without thinking about it um, or without being careful. And in particular, like matching the level of caution to the level of risk you know, that seems to be in the experiment. And this has happened a couple of times since. Um, I think there was a similar thing with CRISPR um, where a number of people called out, hey, what are we going to do, especially about like human germline editing? Um, there was a, uh, there was a pause, NIH had like a pause on gain of function research uh, funding for a few years, although then they unpaused it. Um, and so I don't actually quite know what happened there, right? Um, so, uh, you know, it, like there's no sense in just sort of like barreling ahead heedlessly, right? Yeah. We should, I think part of the history of progress is actually progress in safety. Um, in, in many ways, certainly at least at a day-to-day -day level, we've gotten a lot safer, um, both from the hazards of nature and from the hazards of the technology that we create. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we've come up with better um, processes and procedures, uh, both in terms of operations. Think about how safe airline travel is you know, today. That's an operational, that, there's a lot of operational procedures you know, that lead to safety. And then also I think in, um, in, in research, right? And so these bio lab safety procedures are an example. Now, I'm not saying that's a solved problem. From what I hear, there's like um, still a lot of um, uh, unnecessary or unjustified risk in the way we run bio labs today. And so maybe there's some Im important reform that needs to happen there. I think that sort of thing should be done. Um, and ultimately, like I said, I see all of that as kind of the story of, pro as, uh, the story of progress, right? Because safety is, safety is a problem too. Um, and we attack it with intelligence just like we attack every other problem. Totally. So you mentioned airplanes makes me think like you can imagine kind of getting overcautious. You know, we've these kind of crazy inventors have built these like flying machines. We don't want them, you know, to get reckless, potentially, you know, either crash them, maybe they'll like cause property damage. Let's like place a moratorium on like building new aircraft. Let's like just make it very difficult to innovate. And now um, air travel is like on some measures, the safest way to travel anywhere. Um, so like you can imagine, okay, what's the, and like, how does this carry over to something like risks from, for instance, engineered pandemics? Um, this is like totally obvious, but presumably both, both the moratoria regulation um, foresight thing, that is important. But in the very long run, it seems like 
we'll reach some sustainable point of security against these um, risks from biotechnology, not from these kind of fragile arrangements of trying to s slow everything down and pour stuff as, as important as those things are in the short term, but rather from barreling ahead on like defensive capabilities, like, you know, an enormous distributed system for like picking up on pathogens like super early on. And these, this like fits better in my head with the progress vibe because this is like a clear problem we can just like funnel a bunch of people into solving, right? And I, I mean, I anticipate you'll just agree with this, right? But if you're faced with a choice between let's like get across the board progress in um, biotechnology, let's just kind of like invest in the full portfolio. <laughs> um, or on the other hand, you know, the safety stuff seems like especially better than risky stuff. Let's kind of go almost all in on that and like make a bunch of differential progress there. Seems like that second thing is not only better, but like maybe, you know, an order of magnitude better, right? Yeah, I don't know how to quantify it. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> certainly seems a better, lot better, right? <laughs> and I mean, I think uh, like, so the, so, so one the good thing that this points to is that like, I think we can look at technologies and like some of them, like different technologies just have clearly different um, risk benefit profiles, right? And so something like um, some uh, wastewater monitoring system that will pick up on any new pathogen, right, just seems like a clear win, right? And then on the other hand, um, I mean, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on this, but maybe like gain of function research is just like a clear loss, yeah. right? Or just like a clearly, it's just like one of those things where risk clearly outs, uh, outweighs benefit. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, again, yeah, we should be smart about this stuff. But if we, yeah, if we find and so the good news is, yes, if we find the right general purpose technologies, um, the right general purpose technologies can add um, layers of safety uh, because general capabilities can pr can prevent us or, or can protect us against general risks that we can't, you know, completely foresee. So like the wastewater monitoring thing is one, but like, I mean, here's another example. Um, what if we had broad spectrum antivirals uh, like that were as effective against viruses as our broad spectrum antibiotics are against bacteria, right? Well, that would significantly reduce the risk of the next pandemic, right? Right now, pa dangerous pandemics are pretty much all viral because if they were bacterial, we'd have some bacteria, we'd have some antibiotic, right, that works against them, um, probably, right? There's always a risk of, of, of resistance and multi-drug resistance and so forth. But in general, like the dangerous stuff recently has been viruses um, for exactly this reason. Um, you know, similar thing, like if we had, um, suppose we had some like, uh, highly advanced um, kind of uh, nanotechnology that gave us essentially like terraforming capacity. Climate change would be a non-issue. We'd just be in control of the climate, right? Nanotech like if, seems like a worse example to me for reasons which should be obvious. Okay, sure. Uh, yes. We can talk about that. That wasn't yeah. the point. The point, sure, was, no, sure. yeah. the point was if we had um, if we had the ability to control, to just sort of control the climate, right, then we wouldn't have to worry about these kind of like, you know, whatever, runaway climate effects and, uh, yeah. right, what if the climate gets out of control? Um, so... Uh, yeah. So, I, I, um, general. So, general technologies can prevent uh, or can protect against general classes of risk. And I do think that also, um, you know, some technologies have like a very clear um, kind of like risk benefit trade off yeah. in one direction or the other, and that should guide us. Yeah, I think like I want to I want to make kind of like two points. Here. One is I think kind of just like listening back to this, it actually strikes me that like a lot of what we we're just saying on the bio stuff was kind of like analogous to what we were before saying about like the climate stuff, where there are like almost like two reactions you can have to the problem. One is to like just stop growth or like progress as we kind of defined it, just like across the board and just like hold off, and that is like clearly silly or like has like bad 
uh, like like consequences from it, or you can take like what we kind of discussed as like the more nuanced approach, where you want to like actually double down on progress in like certain areas, um, such as detection systems or, or what kind of have you, and maybe like selectively hold off on others, right? Like in a function, but actually in many cases is like a case for progress, not against, in order to like solve these problems that we're kind of incurring. The thing I kind of wanted to pick up on there, kind of at the end though, um, of what you said is like. General purpose technologies, all these like just like really powerful capabilities just seem like really hard. I think when we're kind of talking about general purpose things, I think we're kind of having a discussion here implicitly about AI. But like maybe to also use like the geoengineering example, like there is just a, a big problem of just having things that are that powerful. Like let's say we can choose whatever climate. Yeah, we can definitely solve climate change or like control the overshoot or something. But if the wrong person gets their hands on it or if it's like a super decentralized technology and anybody can do anything and the like offense-defense balance isn't clear, then you can also just like really screw things up as well, right? And I think that's like maybe why it becomes a harder issue. And it becomes even harder when these technologies are like super general purpose, which makes them like really difficult to stop or like to like not get distributed or like embedded and stuff. Like if you just think of like all the potentially like upsides you could have from AI, but all the like potential downsides you could have if just like one person uses it for like a really bad thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. That just seems really difficult. I don't want to downplay any of the problems. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> problems are real. Um, technology is, uh, you know, not automatically good. Again, can be used for good or evil, can be used wisely or foolishly. We should be super aware of that, right? Yeah. I think the point that seems important to me is that, you know, maybe there's like a cartoon kind of version of progress studies, which is something like... Um, there's this like one number we care about. It's like the scorecards and that number is like gross world product, um, whatever, right? And we sort of like drive that up and that's all that matters. Um, there's also like a nuanced and sophisticated version which says, um, let's kind of think a bit more carefully about what things like stand to be best for, you know, longer timescales, understanding that there are like um, risks from novel technologies which we can kind of foresee and kind of describe the contours of. Um, and what that tells us to do is to maybe focus uh, a bunch more on speeding up the like defensive capabilities, putting a bunch of just like smart people into thinking about what kind of like technologies we can do to address those risks, right? And maybe not just like throwing everyone to like the entire portfolio and hoping things go well. Um, and I think you know maybe if there is like some difference between the kind of like long-termist crowd and the progress studies crowd, one of those differences might not be a difference in like ultimate worldview, but maybe it's just like, what are the parameters? Like what numbers are you plugging in, right? And what, what are you getting out? Is it could right? be, it, it could be, you know, actually I, I, or it might actually even be the opposite. It might just be that it's a difference in temperament and how people talk about this stuff when we're not quantifying. And then if you came down to, if we actually sat down to like allocate uh, resources and uh, uh, agree on like safety procedures and agree on, you know, which technology, to pro we, like, we might actually find out we agree on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was like, let's see, what was the, I think it was the Scott Alexander line about AI safety. It was like, you know, on the one hand, some people say like, um, uh, like we shouldn't uh, freak out and ban AI or anything, but we should at least get a few smart people, you know, starting to work on the problem. And other people say, like, yeah, maybe we should at least start getting a few sp smart people working on the problem, but we shouldn't freak out or ban AI or anything. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the exact same thing, but just with you know with a difference in, in emphasis. And so I think some of that might be going on here, and that's why I keep wanting to bring this back to like, and what are you actually proposing, right? Like, yeah. let's come up with a let's say which projects we think should be done, which investments should be made, right? And like. Um, 
and 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 we might actually, you know, we might actually end up agreeing on a lot. I think, I mean, in terms of temperamental differences and similarities, I think there's a ton of of overlap. So, you know, one one bit of overlap is just like just appreciating how much better things can get, and like being bold enough to spell that out is like something taboo about just noticing we could just have like a ton of wild shit in the future, and it's kind of up to us whether we get that or not, right? Yeah. That seems like an important um, mm. overlap. Yeah, yeah, and you kind of mentioned before, I think, like the like agency mindset or something there. As yeah. Well, right? yeah, yeah, as in like we can make the difference here. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I, I think if there's a way to, to reconcile these, maybe it is just uh, like ultimately understanding safety is a part of progress. Yeah. Um, it is... Uh, it is a goal. <laughs> it is something we should all want. Um, and it is something that we ultimately have to achieve through applied intelligence, mm -hmm. just like we achieve all of our other goals, right? Just like we achieve the goals of, of food, clothing, and shelter, um, and and even uh, transportation and entertainment and, you know, all of the th other kind of obvious goods uh, that, that progress has gotten us. Like safety is also one of these things where we just have to um, understand, you know, what it is. Uh, agree that we want it, right? Like define it, set our sights on it, and, and go after it. Yeah. And ultimately, yeah. I think we can achieve. Yeah, it. yeah. I, I want to ask Finn's question to you actually. Like, when you look at the EA community, are there like specific things that stand out as like things you really like, or things you think that like it could improve upon and stuff? Yeah. Let's see. So um, uh, the EA the EA community is uh, you know, highly overlapping with at least like the the rationalist community, and um, I mean that is. Uh, there's a lot that I admire about that community in just in terms of the epistemic approach, um, being extremely intellectually honest, intellectually curious, um, trying to get very clear about what we believe and understand, uh, being very empirical, um, uh, uh, being quantitative when that makes sense, uh, and, and so forth. I think all those are, 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 are pretty good. Uh, I think a lot of the, uh, the progress community, um, also reflects and admires some of those sort of epistemic virtues. And I think that's maybe a lot of why these two communities kind of get along and, and have a lot of really interesting conversations. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. Um, I appreciate the ambition of the EA community, right? Just like, yeah, we want to do a lot of good for the world and, um, uh, and we're going to be very, we're actually going to be radical in thinking, you know, about, about how we do that. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, um, I'm not an altruist. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I'm an individualist and, uh, I, I like the idea of doing good for the world. I don't feel that it's necessary. I feel like it's more of a personal choice than a, than a moral imperative. I'm sometimes like not entirely clear where even the EA community falls on that. Yeah, yeah, I don't um, think we are not going to crack that nut in itself. Yeah, sure. But you know, I think there. At the end of the day, there is an interesting kind of um, uh, uh, difference in moral framework or approach of kind of you know there. Um, and it's interesting to me that that even kind of very different moral approaches can. Um, find sympathy in a lot of goals, right? Or at least a, or apparent sympathy um, in, in certain goals and programs like this goal of progress. Um, and so, uh, I mean, 
for for the listeners, I'll just say that like the reason we're in the same room today is like we're getting together for uh, a, a workshop on this where we're going to talk about what are the different possible moral foundations for for progress studies and the pursuit of progress. And um, I'm looking forward to those discussions, and I think we're going to uh, you know come up with some interesting ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I do want to ask, uh, and like obviously feel free to pass. Is there like anything you would like to see the EA community do different, or, or things you think that like it gets wrong and stuff? Um, yeah, feel free to like pass if you want, but. I'd interested to hear any hot takes and i'll flag as well that like i think a big culture thing of ea is like self-criticism and stuff so i don't think yeah sure um, (laughs) no not at all i'm just um i mean it's interesting because i think i I think i've actually sort of seen the ea community evolve a bit and so um uh, uh, like there was a time when there was there seemed to be a whole lot of focus on like um our spreadsheet says that bed nets for malaria are the most important thing, and just like this is the most important thing in the world now, yeah. right? Um, um, and it's it's certainly uh, evolved uh, beyond just that. So there was a there was a really interesting Twitter debate um, that happened that a bunch of people got involved in from sort of the progress community and the AA community around whether you should direct your attention and resources and maybe your career to some thing that you can kind of justify through like a spreadsheet versus this, yeah. something where where you have more maybe of just like a personal vision or motivation or passion. Mm-hmm. And I think the the EA community was coming down a little more on the spreadsheet side of like you should, you know, have this like justification for why you're going to end up doing a bunch of good. And the progress community was saying like Look at the things that have done great good in the world. Um, often you trace them back to just like some scientist who was really interested in like microbes, you know, before anybody even knew that they caused disease, right? Um, or or somebody who was just tinkering, right? And who, uh, I mean, it's funny, even, I mean, actually, even after we knew microbes caused disease, like um, Howard Florey, who ran the lab that, uh, uh, that developed penicillin as a drug, um, right, maybe the biggest medical breakthrough of the 20th century, certainly one of them. He, hey, there was some quote from him that was like, we weren't, tr- like, we didn't do this to help humanity. We just thought it was just an interesting scientific and technical challenge, right? And there was some similar thing from, like, um, uh, the, the Wright brothers. They were like, economic advantages? Nah, we just kind of wanted to show that it was possible for people to fly. I, I feel like I'm hearing a false dichotomy here. So I, I want to say that at least there's a kind of roughly speaking, you know, long-termist camp to uh, EA where it's honestly close to impossible to model things out at the with the granularity of an Excel spreadsheet for obvious reasons, right? You're talking about these kind of wild like developments that we haven't seen in, in human history yet. And so, you know, you're just forced to like um, make bets and take guesses and um, do things which no one's done before you know we don't we don't have evidence that only following the extremely well evidenced interventions is the best thing to do right i uh, i do think the point though like is it motivated by altruism or is it that motivated seems, because that you seems like the difference like, personally yeah something like i would be surprised and maybe there's actually no disagreement here that if i really just wanted to do like the best thing from an impartial perspective just make the world go best it would be surprising if it turns out the best you can do is just kind of try to do cool stuff and some of it will turn out good. You know, try to invent, you know, useful things or something. seems like you could actually do an awful lot more good if you spent some time thinking systematically, not at the level of spreadsheets, but just at the level of, you know, prioritization. What looks important in the world right now? 
And then once I've done that, then I can kind of maybe take a more of a, you know, creative, less constrained uh, approach. But yeah, some maybe, but again, if you applied that retroactively, you would have cut off like an enormous number of amazing discoveries and inventions in the past, right? The problem is that what, it, it's just so hard to foresee, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, and it, it, you can't, you can't foresee all of the paths and connections and therefore what actually turns out to be really valuable, often it's just very hard to explain and very like illegible in the beginning, yeah. right? And so if you constrain yourself to like things where I have a good re rationale for like why this is the most important thing to work on, yeah. it just, you're just gonna miss stuff. I mean, so look, I would, here's one thing I would say. If you have no idea what to work on yeah. and there's nothing that is like driving you and pulling you and you have no fire and like, sure, go like approach the problem rationally and maybe and and make you know make your spreadsheet and make your list or something um <laughs> but like if you have some just some internal it's just like driving passion some something you're just obsessed with and you're so curious about and you can't stop thinking about you should probably just go pursue that thing yeah like whatever it is and i i also don't want to like i think it's like maybe frame is like, and I, I don't think like you were making this the case for that, like EAs just care about like the spreadsheet or like whatever, like personal fit is like a huge question, right? Like when it comes to like career and stuff. And I think like definitely for myself, like it matters a ton. There are some things I can like get more excited about than others. I do think there is like an important point that like, I think it is kind of true that like often you don't know what you are going to get excited about or like it's a lot more malleable than you think. Like if it turns out that you just like really like doing like operations or like this type or that type of like work, then like choosing to do that work for a cause that is like maybe like more altruistic or like more like higher up on the spreadsheet or something is like good. But yeah, I don't think like you're disagreeing with any of that. It's just something to maybe- There's really a lot say. going on in my head right now. So <laughs> one thing to say is like, if you are as idiosyncratic and passionate and as smart as you know the great innovators of the last two centuries, then it would be incredibly dumb to try to like divert them away from the, the thing they're passionate about that seems like pretty exciting, even though they find it hard to articulate the you know the kind of spreadsheet style end end vision, and try to like divert them into doing something which is like much more legibly good. You know, like take young Elon Musk and tell him to like go work at Wall Street and donate his money, right? Like this is just like a terrible move. Um, so I expect part of what's going on is there's actually more agreement than you might think. Maybe it's worth thinking about people as you know some people have these characteristics like they're extraordinarily driven and um creative um but their specific passion is is like somewhat malleable right and if you just can nudge them to like care about these like really big problems in the world then in expectation they'll just like stand to do a bunch more goods and maybe there's like crazy things which could have been invented in the past but which weren't because people these people had you know other passions. And like a second thing to mention is that there's like presumably some amount of kind of, you know, the silent evidence of the hundreds of like kind of smart idiosyncratic people who like ended up barking up the wrong the wrong tree. I think that's less important because it's fine to like have a bunch of losses if you get like enormous hits, but you see what I'm saying? I think that um like yeah, so one way to resolve this might be I, I do think it's very important if you want to do great work, I think it's important to um to think, to spend a lot of time thinking about what the big problems in the world are, right? And to like have a developed worldview, to expose yourself to lots of things, to um, read about what other people think are the most important things to work on and so forth, right? And then all of that can ultimately sort of like feed into your subconscious and then, um, and might actually filter through in some intuition for what you, you know, want to be doing right now yeah. that, um, that is, uh, that might not even be legible to you, let alone like, you know, the outside world. Um, so I, I, I agree, you shouldn't just ignore like what we know or can say about what, you know, important things are to, to work on in the world. 
Um, and uh, I mean, Richard Hamming was the one who would just like exhort right. researchers yeah. to actually like work on important problems, <laughs> right? Like, and so I, I think there's something actually really true about that. Um, but but I would just caution against um, I would caution against having it be a requirement that you can explain to someone else or justify to anybody else like why this is important. Like, so if you have a feeling that it's if, uh, that it's important. Um, uh, maybe you should go, you know, maybe you should go and work on it, even if you don't feel that like people like your community would agree. Um, and definitely and definitely you want to be careful about um, traps like uh, prestige traps, right? Totally, Where totally. you end up just sort of, uh, OK, well, this is the thing that my that my whole community says, like a good person would work on. And so I'm going to go work on that. Right. Like that is a way to get fully agree with that to, lo to lose touch with your authentic motivation. So here's, here's where I would agree you do not need it to be a requirement that you can perfectly and legibly articulate why what you're working on is important to you know your immediate peers, your the people you're surrounded with. I do think it's important to be able to explain to yourself and to be honest with yourself about whether or not this thing you're working on could actually be in, important. Because if you don't try to do that, and it's easy not to, it is pretty easy to delude yourself. Um, and you can be like totally brilliant, right? Think of all the like utterly brilliant um, uh, mathematicians who got hung up on one fairly inconsequential problem and they made like extraordinary progress in this thing that doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, seems like they could have done more. Yeah. Yeah, hard to tell. I mean, I think uh, another way to look at this might be to say... Um, especially if you're in like science or math, right? Um, sometimes you might have an intuition for why the problem that you're working on is like an important problem to your field. Yeah. You might not have any clue how that, whether or how that will eventually be like useful to the economy or to some humanitarian yeah. cause or yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That's the sort of thing where you have to just say, look, I don't, I can't connect all the dots, but like knowledge is important. Science in general has been one of the greatest things for humanity. If I can advance science, yeah, yeah. then like that is sort of justification enough. Yeah. I, um, I, I guess like maybe to draw this out, there are like two points I think you're kind of making. One is just like, you don't need to be inherently motivated by altruism in order to do good. And maybe just like, there are like better, like actual ways to do this in real life in order to do good than like explicitly trying to do good. And then there's maybe this like second point of just like, it's really, really hard to just like know where things are and like maybe just like even reflecting on it like a bit explicitly and stuff doesn't really get you anywhere. Maybe it actually like runs counter to it uh, or it just is a bit of a distraction. Does does that kind of resonate or? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's, um, let's wrap up. So first question we ask everyone is what three or more uh, books, films, articles, whatever, would you recommend to anyone listening to this basically and someone who's curious about finding out about what we've talked about. Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. So a few of my top recommendations for, for sort of progress reading. Uh, so one is Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, um, which might be just like the best single sort of introduction to like, um, you know, progress as such. Um, uh, another one I'll recommend is The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. Uh, yeah, deeply philosophical uh, book that really made me, you know, like think and, and rethink a number of things. Um, and he explicitly talks about progress and its meaning and where it comes from. Um, and then another one I'll throw out is uh, Where Is My Flying Car? 
uh, by by J Stores Hall. This just came out in a new Stripe Press edition. Yeah, mm. and on audiobook as well. Oh yeah, great. Uh, and it is a um, uh, it is a number of things, but it is in, in part it is a work of futurism. So he talks about the extraordinary potential of things like nuclear technology or nanotech, and um, got me excited about a number of things. Um, and then, okay, so I already had three, but if I could throw in one bonus, um, I will name uh, The Wizard and the Prophet uh, by Charles Mann, uh, same guy who wrote 1491. It is a really interesting um, just sort of study in the contrast between the sort of techno-optimist versus enviro-pessimist sort of worldview in a way that I think um, understands both sides and is uh, and tries hard to be fair to both of them and just paints the contrast uh, between the two very clearly through a number of case studies and also through uh, biographies of two um, really interesting figures, um, one of whom is Norman Borlaug. And the book, in my opinion, is worth it for like the two chapters on Borlaug alone. Yeah, the other question uh, I want to ask to like kind of close off is are there any specific questions that you would like to see uh, like more good work on and like the more specific the better? This can be like totally self-interested as well. Like are there just like any like uh, little things that you would just like to see uh, answers on? Yeah. Okay, here's one here's one random specific one that came to mind recently. Um, uh, I, I, I was reading David McCullough's History of the Brooklyn Bridge and he mentioned that um, in the in the U.S., I think in around the time of the, the that bridge was getting built, late 1800s, there were something like 40 bridge collapses a year, or some number that I don't know. It just seemed it just seemed high to me. It's like almost one a week, right? Huh, yeah. um, and so I'm really curious about this. Like, why were the bridges collapsing? Um, why did we not know how to build bridges uh, and what ultimately solved that? I'm assuming it got solved because like that sounds like a lot of bridge collapses, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And this was in the U.S. or like in- I think in the U.S. In, alone. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. Um, so I'm curious about that one, right? Um, so that is a, and it, and it fits into the safety theme, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's true. a lot of a lot of safety that, again, that we, we sort of take <laughs> for granted that we forget like, oh yeah, bridges just used to maybe like collapse and yeah. buildings, you know, fall down or catch on fire or, you uh, yeah. Fantastic. And then last question is where can people find you uh, and what you're working on online? Yep. Uh, my All my writing is on rootsofprogress.org and I have uh, links to recordings of my interviews and stuff there. And then I'm also pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Jason Crawford. Awesome. Jason Crawford, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys. It was a great conversation. That was Jason Crawford on the Roots of Progress. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Crawford. They will find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. And if you know of any other cool resources on these topics that others might find useful too, then please send them to us at feedback at hearthisidea.com. Likewise, if you have any constructive feedback, uh, do feel free to email us or click on the website where we have an anonymous form under each episode. And lastly, if you want to support and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, then you can also leave a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. Uh, also to Claudia for writing the transcripts. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>